0: Welcome to The Reckoning, a series of talks co-presented by Sydney Festival and the UNSW Centre for Ideas. I'm Fran Kelly, and the conversation you're about to hear, Pandemic Politics, features myself, journalist Laura Tingle, constitutional lawyer Rosalind Dixon, and author George Megloginus. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Good evening and welcome to Pandemic Politics, co-presented by Sydney Festival and the UNSW Centre for Ideas. My name is Fran Kelly, formerly presenter of the ABC's Our In Breakfast program, currently of no fixed address but still with your ABC, I'm happy, happy to say. Firstly, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and nations we are all meeting from tonight. For me, that's the Ngunnawal people and I would like to pay my respects to their leaders, past, present and emerging, and thank them for their enduring care of this land, And also to extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who might be watching tonight. Now, let's get the ball rolling. Thank you, all of you, I should say, for tuning in while summer is still the dominant mood for many of us across the country. But of course, we should also acknowledge, too, that so many of us have had a rotten, rotten summer, interrupted again by COVID and the frustrations and anxieties brought to us by the Omicron variant and our government's various responses to it. To any of you here tonight who are sick or in isolation perhaps, good luck to you and I hope you're going all right. That brings us to the theme of our discussion tonight, pandemic politics. So first, let me introduce our panel. Rosalind Dixon is Professor of Law and Director of the Gilbert and Tobin Center of Public Law at UNSW in Sydney. She's a graduate of UNSW and Harvard and she's taught at law schools around the world including Harvard, Columbia, the University of Chicago and National University of Singapore. Roz is also the author of a new book with Richard Holden, From Free to Fair Markets, Liberalism After COVID, which will be out later this year. She's also currently director of the Pathways to Politics for Women program at UNSW. George Megloginous is author, a journalist with five books to his name, including the Walkley Award winning The Australian Moment, which formed the basis for the three-part ABC documentary series Making Australia Great. He's also the author of many quarterly essays, his latest, published last year, Exit Strategy, examine a post-pandemic path for Australian governments. And Laura Tingle, journalist, author, and she is also an essayist. And of course, Laura, too, is the chief political editor and this week, the host of 7.30 on ABC TV. So welcome to all of you. And um, before we get into things tonight, I think Roz would like to say something about the controversy surrounding Sydney Festival's decision to seek some sponsorship from the Israeli Embassy.
1: Thank you, Fran. Thanks for having us. What a delight to be joining such a, an august panel of Australia's leading political journalists. And like you, I want to acknowledge that I'm on uh, traditional lands here and pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the dark and people. But I just want to acknowledge that we are aware, and I speak for myself when I say I'm very much aware of the legitimate concerns people have about the funding received for decadence from the Israeli embassy. And I very much hope that the festival overall will be a spur for more productive uh, and deeper conversations about that issue, as well as a broad range of other issues. So uh, with uh, noting those real and serious concerns, I am delighted to be part of this festival of debate and ideas and hope that the debate is a productive one.
0: Okay, well, let's get on with some debate now. Um, Laura, I'm going to start with you. Pandemic politics, that's our theme tonight. It can mean different things at different times in the electoral cycle. And tonight, we are taking a a longer look at the way politics has played out over the two years of this pandemic, but also how decisions have been made, responsibilities shared, and what post-pandemic politics might look like. But right now, We are months, perhaps even weeks away from an election being called. So politics are very acute. It's a day-to-day sort of wrestle between the major parties and others at the moment, and things are very basic. We're talking, you know, rapid testing kits and a shortage of them. We're talking long testing queues again. We're talking empty supermarket shelves again. Right now, Laura, how are the politics of this pandemic playing out domestically?
2: Well, Fran, I think if we just focus on the politics at the federal level to start with, as you say, there are all these things that have happened. I suppose the way I look at it is that the Omicron variant has basically produced a really profound shift in the politics, just as it has in um, the health experience of most Australians. If you think about it, for the last two years, the uh, system has been test, trace, isolate and quarantine. Well, that's been smashed by Omicron. Similarly, we had... Uh, two years of lockdowns, obviously not always the federal government's uh, uh, call on that, but we've had two years where the economy was being hit by the fact that we did have lockdowns and constraints on what we could do. Now, a lot of those have basically either been removed or have become ineffective because it has just become such a widespread of the disease. So now we're in this situation where the economy is suffering because of Omicron. People can't go to work People are getting really sick. Uh, I think the interesting thing is, and I don't know the extent to which this is determined by the focus on of uh, federal politicians on the election, but uh, I think this sort of view that the crisis is about to pass, which has been a feature for a really long time, has really almost become more entrenched. You know, the officials and the government ministers will be saying to you, look, Omicron's already peaked. It's just around the corner that it'll get better, the economy will take off again and everything will be really rosy brackets by the time we go to the polls but I think all of those things change the way people will be assessing the government because it's not just a debate about the government being in your face or not being in your face Omicron is in your face COVID is in your face and that is affecting people's lives whether it's their health or whether it's their business um, whether it's their capacity to go to work send their kids to school and that that really just changes their uh, assessment, I think, of whether the government has got it right or wrong. And while it might have been able to get away with some of the calls in the past where you know, people would give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, when you can't get a RATS test that allows you to go to work, when you have trouble getting vaccines for your kids, when we start to hear reports that in aged care settings, which are definitely the federal government's responsibility, there are shortages, again, of PPE, uh, there are shortages of RATS tests, that starts to really change the way people see politics and it's not good for the government.
0: No, that's right. And to some extent, I mean, that that sort of crisis, an impending crisis is not good for a government and there's plenty of levels and indicators where it's clear this government hasn't anticipated enough and that's been a bit of a constant theme and, and over these two years that theme has really developed, I think. But is there also a sense that now people... Although we all like to live in hope, perhaps, accept that um, or just don't believe the government when they they say the peak is around the corner. We just don't believe anything anymore. George, I know you keep a very close eye on COVID stats, which are frightening for many. I mean, Victoria, it declared a code brown for, for their hospital system for the first time ever for the entire hospital system this week. That made some people very, very anxious, particularly in the state of Victoria, where you are, where You know, the anxiety levels, I think, still remain fairly high. How would you describe the political mood in Victoria right now around government, state and federal, handling of this pandemic? What's the mood?
3: Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, I think I got a sense as a citizen, as also as an observer, I think a a lot of my uh, friends and also colleagues felt the same way towards uh, the end of last year we sort of headed off one delta wave and then another wave came almost immediately afterwards. And there was a sense in the community that whatever the lockdown at the top, that was in operation at the time was, that people were over it and began to make their own rules. And I think Daniel Andrews found this problem, and I do have to take you back about six or seven months, found he had this problem of compliance, which he didn't have in 2020. And I think there was a sense through the second half of last year that Victorians were exhausted. Omicron, you could probably multiply it by 10 now uh, because at the moment, if I look out the window or if I go to the shops, it feels like March of 2020 again. There's no one around. The streets are empty of cars. Uh, the restaurants uh, may have one or two people sitting inside. People aren't queuing for takeaway like they did through the second lockdown last year. There is probably a, more than anything else a sense of exhaustion within the community, That, and then that translates to attitudes to both state and federal government. Interestingly enough, in Victoria, though, the polls show that Daniel Andrews is still looking very good, which is unusual, given that I think they, uh, I think the public are over him. And I think he knows they're over him because he withdrew quite a bit towards the end of last year when he, when he sort of, we weren't letting the virus rip to the same extent that New South Wales was, but there was a resignation in his voice that there wasn't that much more we could do to contain it and that we were now trying to manage a surge. Uh, he hasn't done as many doorstops as he did before. Uh, he hasn't hectored or lectured as he did before. He was very comfortable with that suit on uh, earlier last year and certainly the year before. So I think he has, has recognized something has gone amiss. Scott Morrison. Now remember Scott Morrison, as soon as the border restrictions, Victoria was lifted, he was down here as fast as he could, as he could get. And the first seat he turned up to was Higgins. And Higgins is now marginal. It's a seat of prime ministers, it used to be Harold Holt's old seat. It was also John Gordon's seat and it was Peter Costello's seat. Very, very blue ribbon liberal seat. And Scott Morrison was, was tramping up and down the, uh, the shopping centres of Melbourne and Camberwell and Hawthorne, looking to grab any hand he could shake uh, and looking to reassure people that the government was on their side. So I think both state and federal governments have got a uh, disconnection with community and the voter sentiment in Victoria scott morrison
0: certainly did leap down to victoria as soon as he can but i think he was mindful or perhaps hopeful still at that stage he might be able to go to an early election um then omicron hit but um ros to broaden it out a little now to some of the the bigger questions the relationship between state and federal governments during this pandemic is being really an important central issue to the management of it on show over the past weeks have been all the tensions and the problems within our federal system in terms of blame, lack of clarity over roles and responsibilities, states going one way, Fed still pulling in another direction. More broadly, though, has the pandemic response revealed the strength of our federation, of our federal system, or the weaknesses of it? How, how would you describe it?
1: Well, it's certainly shown that it's imperfect, but I think most people would say we've been much um, better off public health and economically because of the competitive pressure put on the decision-making at the federal level from particularly Premier Daniel Andrews and Gladys Berejiklian. I think you see Dom Perrottet and Scott Morrison singing from the same hymn book, and I say that advisedly, um, in a way that reduces the degree to which federalism has increased good decision-making and accountability. There's obviously tension, you know, nothing that's driven by competitive accountability is, you know, all smooth sailing. And I do think that for, you know, many people, they have felt very much the downsides of that tension. They've been cut off from family and and loved ones. They've been on, you know, very much the the pointy end of very strict restrictions on one or other side of a border. But I think we've had a healthy competition between if you like, flatten the curve, people, and elimination or radical containment policies. And that has been because of the federalism dimension of this. You know, hospitals are both federal and state. The borders are the feds. Hotel quarantine is the states. The the internal borders are the states. And all that interlocking decision-making has made it very complicated, but it's put competitive tension in a way that I think means we're in a much better place than if it had been Scott Morrison at the footy by himself.
0: Well, I mean, I certainly agree that I think we're in a better place for the way National Cabinet was established. I, mean, I think to me, Laura, the formation of National Cabinet was a terrific vehicle for managing this pandemic at the beginning, and I agree with Roz that I think we would have perhaps not been in such a great position if we hadn't had Daniel Andrews and Gladys and to name two of them, around that table of decision-making. So it worked initially, I thought. What do you think? Is it still working? Look,
2: I think it's working differently. It was crucial uh, in those early days, you know, the fact that uh, Berejiklian and Andrews, you know, basically monstered Prime Minister into uh, making some hard decisions because he was still prevaricating a lot. It's obviously broken down a lot in the sense that people aren't looking for uniform outcomes everywhere, much more acceptance that people want uh, different outcomes for different states, and that's fine. One thing that people have said to me about it who are involved is that one of its greatest benefits still really is that they're sharing experiences. They actually get to talk to each other about what's going on, how they're they're thinking about addressing the issue. And I think that comes back to Roz's point, really, which is the competitive nature, if if you like, of the national cabinet is a really good one. Uh, The way I look at it is I remember a very senior businessman saying to me at some stage in 2020, oh, it's just terrible. The states are all doing these different things and it's really hard and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, it's so good in New Zealand because Jacinda Ardern's just making all these decisions. And I said, well, what if Jacinda Ardern was a complete idiot? What if it was the one person you were relying on was no good? So I think it still has a great value, both in terms of the internal discussion that they have, but also the fact that their responses to things are reasonably transparent. And we can sort of look at, various outcomes for example at the moment Queensland versus Western Australia you know the two states that locked down the longest Queensland decided to open the border WA decided not to and has just extended the closure now you can make all sorts of judgments about you know what was right and wrong about those things but it gives you an opportunity to sort of more or less have a bit of a a lab of uh, different approaches to see what works and what doesn't work.
0: Ros, let me ask you, as a constitutional expert, what your take of, of on national cabinet as a model is what should use it going forward. And Laura said there, you know, it's been relatively transparent. Is it been transparent enough?
1: So I just wanted to add one more example, uh, Fran, to, to Laura's, the Ardern counterfactual. Of course, the real one that a lot of us have thought about is the Trump counterfactual as well, which is, Unitary government with great, effective, transparent, wise leadership is, is fantastic. But as soon as that second assumption goes away, having separation of powers both both vertically and horizontally and that competitive accountability is critical and go no further than, you know, mid-2020 in the United States to remind us of that. In terms of national capital, I think it's been very positive and, as Laura said, you know, real kind of information sharing quick effective decision making i think the transparency might be defensible in a a really crisis setting but it's not defensible going forward as a model of ordinary decision making and i think we need to put some strictures around it remember that ordinary cabinets are accountable to parliament in the ordinary um, responsible government and parliamentary uh, system sense and that this is a it's not really a cabinet it's a, a national committee of executive decision makers And I think it's reasonable to expect some confidentiality but not full confidentiality with no later record-keeping disclosure and norms around what can and can't be said by people participating. So I think we need more strictures. Uh, more regulation, more transparency, and we need to formalise what's good about it and build on that to make it a bit more like an institution with checks and balances of the kind we we expect for ordinary times. And we are heading for a mix of emergency and ordinary times. Yeah, and we'll come to that in a moment. But,
0: George, um, this notion of everyone, all these executive leaders around the table, sometimes it's a sense, I think, that it's given either state or federal leaders a bit of cover you know, and you ask in your question, in your essay, exit strategy, that people are a bit confused about who's leading here, what roles, who's leading on what roles. Yeah, is that, as, as National Cabinet, that harder to under, harder to answer or or helped?
3: Where it's helped is that the questions can now be properly framed. I think people like Laura and Roslyn, the theory of, uh, where federalism wasn't working was quite well known to us. And we know the blame shifting and we know in all those grey areas where responsibilities blur between federal and state is where a lot of the impediments to better social policy, better economic policy, a more productive and more cohesive Australia. That's where all the problems lie. Having seen National Cabinet work and remember, it was invented on the spot and that first meeting of National Cabinet was... The first meeting of the Premier's Chief Ministers with the Prime Minister that had been delayed through the bushfires, the Premiers and Chief Ministers wanted a meeting over the bushfires and Scott Morrison didn't want to have that meeting. And they eventually had that meeting. The pandemic is first item of business and within a couple of weeks, the two biggest states, the Premiers of two biggest states, one Labor and one Liberal, have pulled rank on a Prime Minister and, and I think the nation as a whole uh, breathed a little easier at that point in the pandemic because it felt like there was more than one grown-up in the room but what's happened since and remember that first lockdown was the only lockdown we felt together and we felt like it worked together. Uh, Victoria obviously went into its own lockdown while the rest of the country was doing okay for the rest of the remainder of 2020 and then we were sort of in and out of lockdowns uh, through the middle into the second half of 2021. Omicron is the first time where everything is happening at the same time for everyone works uh, Western Australia. In that intervening 18 months we've seen a lot of things that don't work as well as they should and top of the list is aged care, but also the, the labour force, the labour market, uh, workplace relations. That thing doesn't work as well as it could. All the bits where you would trust and Australian safety net would be firm, uh, would be properly stitched up. There are a lot of gaps in it. And the virus has found gaps. It found them very, very effectively. It's a killer in aged care, but it's also a killer with casualized workers. It's a killer with young people, but not necessarily. It doesn't knock them over, but it does uh, render them unable to work. And those things are things that, are, that a national cabinet has to start to understand. And so not only is it joint responsibility, but at some point to settle some of these issues, federal and state governments are gonna to have to figure out who takes primary responsibility in each of these areas. And obviously some of it can be referred up, but some of it, and I mentioned in the Court of Air Cycle, this concept now of sort of contracting in as opposed to contracting out. In aged care, of course, what was the biggest problem in aged care? Commonwealth didn't want to take responsibility and there was a lot of private sector operators that sort of didn't know what the rules were. At the moment, and we've got a great big Royal Commission report to tell us how to fix the problem, That costs a lot of money. I think the, the story going forward, which may be one of the big lessons from the pandemic, is the Commonwealth figures out a way to contract in back to the States to run aged care for them if they don't want to run it themselves. That's one of the big issues. I think you could look at, at a national cabinet. There are a couple of others, climate change and tax reform, but let's not go there just yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's very much sort of post-pandemic. What are we looking at? What have we learned? What are the shifts?
3: Yeah. And- but right now it's managing the aged care system. It's still not managed well. The other thing is managing the labour force. We're not managing that well because of Omicron.
0: Well, it's not managing the labour force well, and there's a lot of things that aren't being managed well. I mean, rapid antigen tests is sort of the example writ large. Again, is it the federal government's responsibility to have made sure there was enough in the country? Is it the state governments to have looked after their own things? I mean, one person tuning in tonight asked, the federal government has been withdrawing from responsibility, shifting to states, especially if challenged. What does this mean for future Commonwealth governments? Would any of you like to answer that? Laura? Yeah, well, I've got a couple of observations to make there. Um, If you think about the list of things that George just
2: mentioned that have gone wrong uh, or, you know, that now have holes in them that worked at at the beginning, labour force laws, income support, aged care, these are all federal government responsibilities. More broadly, I suppose, the thing I'd just make the observation of is that what the pandemic has made clear to people, I think, in a way that we really haven't seen for 30 or 40 years, is the role of the states. People have been very sort of confused about what role federal and state governments have. They've suddenly become much more aware of what their state government does. So, you know, that's changed the politics, I think, quite significantly. I mean, people have talked about the blame game for a really long time. I mean, Kevin Rudd used to talk about it, but I don't think people really knew what the federal and state governments did. I think they're much more aware of that now. So that changes, I think, the pressures on both levels of government to really clarify that. Um, and, and Dom Perrette, um, just before Christmas, gave a speech to the press club where he was saying, look, we need to actually seize this moment and actually look at how our federation works. And he was suggesting um, a hive off and a switch of uh, responsibilities in things like the NDIS as a result of that. So I think it changes the politics. People still basically go to Canberra to say, you've got to fix this. And you can see that with the way there's been the response to the rats test controversy, because people just say, look, you're rats about the fact that, you know. Somebody order the test. Yeah, somebody just do it. And why can't the federal government, you know, Biden announces that he's ordering 500 million of the things. Why is it that we can't? get the federal government to order them into the national stockpile and distribute them and work it out later. Now, whatever is required, George might be right that we see this sort of contracting in thing, but I think it still leaves this fundamental question about what is the role of government. I mean, everybody's exhausted. I think that's one other thing you should say. You can just see it. Even if they're not very good, the politicians are really exhausted and over it. But, you know, if they can get beyond the, oh, it's just, you know, it's going to be... Much better in a couple of weeks. View, which is you know, we'll have rats tests in a couple of weeks, and Omicron will have passed, and the economy will take over to take off again. If they can get out of that mindset and just go, well, actually, we have so much uncertainty about things now. We we know that there are all these various variants out there, and what we have learned is that the health system is chronically underfunded and unready for what might come next, and we have to make a profound decision about this whole thing about reducing the size of government, which has dominated certainly the coalition and, and to a lesser extent, Labor thinking uh, since the 1990s. You know, there's got to be a fundamental shift.
0: And I get the sense that people now want that. They want to know that if all these leaders are talking, then someone will take responsibility for ordering the rat tests or ordering the vaccinations or making sure the hospitals are up to scratch, which they've been saying they will be now. State and federal leaders have been making that promise for eight months at least, and here we are finding them being tested. Rose, I mean, I get the sense that people think, well, the top banana in our country, which is the Prime Minister, should have a handle on that, even if it's devolved to the states. But then again, we've got a Prime Minister who's saying, well, look, you know, I'm all for can-do capitalism and don't do governments, which I always think is a very strange slogan, given the criticisms coming his way. He's almost promoting... A smaller government when I think from everything we've experienced as Laura was saying people are wanting more from their government. I mean there's not much more dollars to be handed out but they want more forward planning, they want more someone taking responsibility. What do you think that will mean for
1: the future constitutionally? So I think it's really interesting Frank because there's sort of two questions on the table. What happens to the size of the federal government and then what happens to the size of government you know, writ large. I think in terms of what happens at the federal level and the great question from Sim in the audience is, depends a lot on the next election and the one after that, which is at the moment, I think the way Morrison has tried to shrink responsibility is a fairly pragmatic form of blame game, other than his, you know, sort of... risk aversion. Well, I actually think he's trying to push responsibility away from Canberra down to the premiers. But it's not accompanied by a really persuasive philosophy about government and the size of the federal government. And he hasn't tried to reverse what has been a one-way trend since the end of the the Second World War, which is a gradual accretion of power in Canberra. The Premier stepped up in 2020, you know, Morrison largely ducked. But I think for us to see a real shift away from Canberra back to the States, one needs a philosophical explanation to that, not just a kind of serendipitous duck and cover strategy from the Prime Minister. And I do think that we need to remind ourselves that the economic response from the government, JobKeeper, JobSeeker, was central and incredibly important to us weathering the pandemic, and that may be the key to keeping some degree of, of confidence in, in Canberra. I think people, as you say, Fran, want to see competent government and they want to see a government that is large enough in scope to chat, you know, tackle the, the problems of the day. If that means insourcing back aged care, so be it. You know, we have a much smaller hospital bed ICU capacity per capita than some comparable countries like the United States. Maybe it's time that we invested in our public health system by saying it's got to have more spare capacity, even if it costs a lot of money. You know, one of the big mistakes that was made early in the pandemic was a kind of cost-conscious, we'll only order AstraZeneca and we'll wait it out and see vis-a-vis Pfizer. That was a critical mistake. So I think Australians, if given the information, there's a lot of stuff to digest. You know, not everyone wants to spend their whole weekend reading the statistics that George and Laura and I do. But if people appreciate what went wrong, they'll say, we want to spend the money on buying the rats, buying the vaccines, having the hospital beds, having the capacity to weather this in a way that means everyone is taken care of and we can get on with things as close to normal as possible. I think but for job keeper, job seeker we would have seen an incredible shift away from Canberra, but the economic part of the puzzle is still very important and the future of the Federation depends on it too because we still have a lot of the money going to Canberra. So however we recalibrate, federalism will depend a great deal on the fiscal part as well as the political narrative and what happens at the next election.
0: Let's move to the fiscal the part of this because this is a health crisis primarily and all our leaders thankfully acknowledged that early on. It became an economic crisis by dint of, of that. Now, you know, the government's spent enormously. Forget any talk of debt and deficit that is now gone. We have trillion dollar deficits out as far debt, as far as the eye can see. We have deficits as far as the eye can see. George, your essay was largely taken up with making sure we don't waste this opportunity. You say, do we do we snatch mediocrity out of the jaws of, of success? There is some success we're having. Look at the unemployment rate. It's very low. The Treasurer is trumpeting that. Um, look at our vaccination rates. They're very high. The Prime Minister is trumpeting that. But the way we are spending the money and the way we are trying not to spend it now is backfiring on us. With Omicron, no more lockdowns. Let's get the economy zooming. Let's get everyone out there doing their thing. Well, it turns out a health crisis brings with it its own economic crisis. And so everyone's knocked about by Omicron. So everybody's staying home. Guess what? There's not the workforce, and the economy is being battered around. In the US government, the Biden administration is making no bones about it. It's going to try and spend its way to growth through a trillion dollar infrastructure package. We don't have that kind of spending on that level factored in, even though our spending is enormous. Have we made a mistake in the way we've spent our money or, as Ros said, clearly JobKeeper kept us in the hunt, JobSeeker kept us in the hunt. There were spendings that had clear productivity benefits for the country. But what in the way ahead?
3: I agree with Ros that JobKeeper, we could argue, because it wasn't properly means-tested and there wasn't any catch-up after the event. There are a lot of firms obviously got JobKeeper that reported increased profits. There's a big transfer of money, not just JobKeeper, but also JobSeeker from... The Commonwealth via the credit card to businesses and households put a, a lot of money in people's pockets, essentially a form of sick pay, keeping at home during those lockdowns in 2020 and then to a lesser extent in 2021. A lot of that support is no longer there now in Omicron, and you can see how much damage it does when you don't support. So we've now, in a sense, tested the two policies. We've tested a radical intervention off the charts in terms of the money that was spent. And now we're testing this idea. Uh, through Omicron that we've spent enough and people can look after themselves at some point. Well, we know that people can't look after themselves if they have to make those decisions. And remember, the Victorians saw this first in the middle of 2020. If a casualized worker has to choose between missing a shift or taking a test, they'll go to work and they'll infect somebody else and then before you know it, it's over. Over Red Rover and you have to shut the place down anyway. So that's the sti- stimulus. Well, it's not really stimulus. It's the stay-at-home part of it. The investment part of it, and this is the thing where I share your concern, Fran, having spent so much money but having not then sought to get a bang for the buck in terms of investment, whether it's um, aged care, whether it's in the health system, whether it's in uh, schools, whether it's in universities, whether it's uh, setting up for recovery a decent skilled migration program that will be able to plug the holes in the labor market that we've seen emerge over the last couple of years, infrastructure, climate change. Climate change is, is it going to be a big spending item in the next 10 years. We haven't had any of those debates, and I think partly because, I don't think this is a radical thought because a number of people have told me this, temperamentally this coalition government wasn't suited to the long-term challenge of investing and renewing in the idea of government in the public sphere. So whilst they were very good in the emergency, uh, Scott Morrison, by the way, have you noticed, even now that he's sort of come back to work with the can-do-capitalism, do-nothing government is still claiming credit for the intervention in 2020. So there is something in his head, in his sort of matrix of slogans that says, by the way, the government was on your side. But I think, temperamentally, they haven't been able to transition from the emergency response to the investment and recovery response. They keep looking for this virus to disappear and for things to go back to normal, for things to go back to 2019. It's a two-year global pandemic. It's a shock, the equivalent of the oil shock, the recessions of the mid-'70s, early-'80s and early-'90s. It's a bigger shock than the global financial crisis. And each of those shocks forced governments around the world to fundamentally reimagine the role of government. And electorates tipped out every government that was in power before the shock. These are probably the bigger questions down the track. If, If the electorate says, I don't like this idea of going back to 2019, coalition are out. And maybe a Labor government is out afterwards because it doesn't reinvest itself. We may be in this position, maybe about to enter this position where the, where the public start to chop and change between sides until somebody figures out how to get government back on your side. And so somebody
0: comes up with some ideas that people think make sense to building a future again. Now, yes. unemployment, investing in skills and training, I think people will love the sound of that. But these are enormous amounts of investment being spent. But Those challenges you've talked of, we've already mentioned aged care, enormous amount of money to be spent still ahead, not budgeted for. Climate change policies, enormous costs coming to them, Uh, reskilling and bringing in the skills that we've now been exposed as as not having enough of enormous investment required. I've always thought that this unprecedented government spending needed some kind of reckoning. We need something like either a Royal Commission into how we've managed this pandemic and the spending of it, not a sort of a politically blaming one, but just an open let's look at how it went, uh, or maybe some kind of future commission established to oversee any emergency spending on this scale again. Enormous amount of money going out the hands of, of a government. But Laura, do, could you see any appetite from this government in particular, but from both sides of politics at the moment, for that kind of you know broad view to look at what we did, learn the lessons of it, And come up with an idea of how we do things differently in the future, particularly interesting that idea of maybe looking at how we manage future spending on this scale again. Well, if I can
2: take a step backwards, I suppose, Fran, I sort of just want to highlight the sort of mindset of both federal and most state governments, actually, at the moment, about the amount of money they've spent and how they see that, because I think that influences uh, the question you're asking. Essentially, if there is this weariness uh, with governments, which is, you know, we've we've thrown everything at this and, you know, we don't know what to do next. Uh, but also, really importantly, um, there's a view that comes out of, you know, economics, which is there's a lot of money that's been transferred onto household and business balance sheets. And it's sort of just sitting there waiting to explode and take off and take the economy with it and everything will be great. So well, that's a, the
0: treasurer's recipe for future
2: growth, right? That's right. So so their, their view is that there's been this shunt of money across and they're still to reap the investment of it, if you like, uh, both politically and economically. So that sort of sort of sets the scene for where the two sides of politics, I think, now approach this. You've got sort of legacy issues on the Labor side where Labor is sort of terrified still of being seen to be profligate which is sort of vaguely hilarious given the amounts of money that have been spent in the last couple of years but they're still sort of living with the uh with the legacy of past political attacks and you can understand why that is because you know the government has tended to sort of go back there whenever it can on the other side i think this sort of idea that they've spent so much and they can't keep spending really constrains them from thinking about it in any fresh sort of way I mean, that's I think a real problem. And we've asked the Prime Minister and various ministers on numerous occasions, just at the micro level, well, look, okay, there've been mistakes made in the past, though um, you know, they're reluctant to admit it. Have you actually gone out as a result of Omicron and, you know, put a couple of people aside to just think about, okay, well, given what we've learnt, what do we do now? Do we do something, do we do things differently? Does the federal government take a bigger role in some things? And there's just no appetite, no appetite at all for them to sort of think in those sort of terms. They're just on either side. I think on either side, um, because okay. once again the election comes into into the frame. You know, they're both both sides are focused on how they're going to pitch their messages for a couple of months' time, and they don't want to think
0: any bigger than that. Yeah, I'll come to the election in a moment. Time is ticking away. But, Ros, this take you have been doing some thinking for governments, which is always great, because the thesis of your upcoming book, From Free to Fair Markets, you call for democratic liberalism or fair markets to replace some elements of our current system. Just talk to me a little bit about that. What's the basis of fair markets and what would it have governments do differently? Because it comes with greater intervention from government, doesn't it?
1: Let me just pick up on what Laura was talking about, if I may, fan in response to that, which is one of the things we're saying in the book is that there's a big difference between good debt and bad debt, or if you like, recurrent expenditure and investment. A lot of what we did in relation to 2020 was recurrent expenditure to fill a big income hole, and we had to do it. Otherwise, the economy would have, you know, really crashed, and people's willingness to go along with unprecedented restrictions in you know civilian non-wartime context would just have evaporated. So I think what we spent was absolutely necessary. And George is right, it would have been great if we'd perfected it, but it was made a bit like Kevin Rudd's intervention, which was go early, go hard, That is what Frydenberg did with JobKeeper, and you can say it wasn't perfect, but I still think it was very, very important and broadly well done. I think we are now looking at what are we going to spend that's the debt that we can expect a return on. So, you know, in the US, they're talking about stimulus, infrastructure spending, and social infrastructure spending. And the kinds of things that George is talking about, you know, training teachers, training nurses, thinking about a new sort of way of imagining the PBS and Medicare that copes with pandemic level need is a social investment that many of those things you can expect a return on and that you can carry that if you've got, we came into the pandemic with low government debt, we can carry that debt into the future. And if we invest, we'll reap a return. So I think the conversation needs to be now, what do we need to invest in in terms of, you know, green jobs, education, the the people who can do the care work for elder care and disabled care and teaching and and our knowledge economy. You know, we did not have the capacity to manufacture mRNA vaccines in Australia and it was only at the very last minute that we got those um, facilities going, but it will take some time before they can do that. That's the sort of stuff that if you invest in it, you, in the long run, you know, can sell to not only Australians but overseas, but you also save billions of dollars. So I, I do think a fair market approach is about government investing. It's not about saying we can spend indefinitely. It's saying we need to invest in social and physical infrastructure and the kind of emergency or fiscal stimulus that we saw in 2020 is a temporary thing that can't go on forever. That's really, you know, one of the many things that we're trying to argue for and saying. I think the one thing that's hard is when, when George says, you know, people are, not wanting to go back to 2019, I think the difficulty is we're so much still in the midst of this crisis, that the time for stepping in back and reflection is, if you like, maybe premature, and that many people would dearly love to go back to 2019. It's, you know, everyone's dream to wake up and go, it's all, you know, back to normal, but with a decent climate response. And I think that the difficulty you have is part of what we need to come out of this stronger, better, fairer, more resilient is a fundamental re, uh, you know, imagination of of the uh, system. But I don't think people have a lot of the mental and emotional energy for it. And I don't think a Royal Commission is that I think, if anything, we need a kind of grand policy uh, bargain that requires stepping back, not so much always looking backward and saying what would we have done differently because there are lots of things it's saying what can we do for the next 10 years 20 years 30 years that would make Australia more resilient more fair more prosperous and I think that may not be something that people have the the stamina for in the midst of Omicron but that's what I hope that the many independents and others running you know in the upcoming election will say is that when we've all caught our breath, the discussion should be about the long-term rebuilding of a better Australia, not just one that limps from lockdown and crisis, um, you know, from one thing to the next. Can
0: you talk about reimagination? I think imagination is the key to that and we are looking for leadership with some kind of imagination, vision, policy, appetite, really. We are, as I mentioned, in the throes almost in the throes of the election campaign. It won't be many weeks now, might be a couple of months before an election is called. Laura, is the pandemic, do you think, and the government's handling of the pandemic, going to be the only thing determining this election outcome? Will it effectively be a referendum on how Scott Morrison managed this pandemic? What do you think? Well,
2: I think it will be, Fran, even if it's not deliberately that way, uh, because it has become... So pervasive because it's now about health and the economy, because it you know becomes about his um, accountability and the government's accountability. If you think about it, we've got these independents running in the election. What have they been running on? They've been running on uh, climate change, anti-corruption commission, uh, on the treatment of women, and that was sort of the framing that sort of noises off thing where people were sort of trying to disrupt the discussion that the major parties weren't really having. All of those in a way still sort of come down to the sort of same sorts of issues that are raised by Scott Morrison's handling of the pandemic. You know, the the sort of climate change response can be framed that way. The accountability question comes up in the Anti-Corruption Commission. So I think it does come down to him and what the response has been and the way he runs politics, which has worked for him really brilliantly until now. But well, somebody made the observation that Scott Morrison only talks to blokes, that his pitch is very much to blokey blokes uh, in the way he approaches politics. Well, I think the problem for him now is that a lot of those blokes have had their livelihoods affected or they've got sick in the last little while. And you know nobody particularly blames a politician for the fact there's been a pandemic, but they do blame a politician for not giving them instruments they need to deal with it and I think that's really his big problem.
0: I mean I'm sure the government is hoping that you know the rat tests arrive by the end of the month as the promise is the pharmacies will be stocked with them and there'll be plenty around and we'll have all have forgotten about rat tests as you know last December we all seem to have forgotten about the lack of vaccinations that by the time the election comes we'll all be moved on but you mentioned blokes there and if the Prime Minister is sort of trying to appeal to the I don't know, what the the Hilux driving blokes, which is, seems to be what a lot of our tax incentives are geared towards. What about, I mean, women hold up half the sky, as they say, what about women and the impact of this pandemic and the government's policies on them? Sam Mostyn, who I think was speaking earlier today as part of this, from Chief Executive Women at the National Press Club last year, she talked about the great exhaustion, which was the exhaustion of women who were, you know, shouldering most of the, the home care roles at the same time, the general caring roles, which were front line in this pandemic, in our hospitals, in our aged care settings, in our supermarkets, all those roles. Has this pandemic, the burden of it, fallen overwhelmingly on women, do you think, George? And do you think women are going to factor that in? That's going to be an issue for the coalition in this upcoming election, that female vote?
3: Absolutely. So the thing about the pandemic, almost from the first lockdown, the burden fell disproportionately on women. So more than half the jobs that were laid off during the lockdowns, each of the lockdowns, regardless of state, that burden of retrenchment fell on women in places like the arts and in uh, hospitality. But the, but the second, and, and this is the hidden burden, the real burden of lockdown is that having dad at home and having to homeschool the kids with dad pretty much been able to live the life that he was living before, if he's if he's uh, if he's a white collar worker, but if he's a blue collar worker, getting really grumpy because he's not working. So there's that second second level of burden which uh, increased the household burden. Very gendered, very gendered um, crisis, and we're not used to them because up until now, every time we had a recession, two thirds to three quarters of all the jobs that disappeared belonged to men. And politics is always about, this is why Scott Morrison still talks about blokes because partly he's got the rear vision mirror on. I know he tells us he wants to look forward, but this generation of politicians have been raised to just see blokes as the victims of things. They get restructured, they get retrenched, they don't get their jobs back. So that's the first point. The second point about the burden on women is it actually cuts across all the other stories of an election because we've had a polarised election for the last 10 years, you know, city versus country, North versus South, so, you know, Victoria versus Queensland, Queensland WA versus Victoria, New South Wales. None of those things matter if women decide they have had enough of this guy and have stopped listening to him. So, you know, the election is almost over if that happens. I know there's a gender gap for Labor and, you know, Bill Shorten didn't get a, you know, wasn't, he had a bad election, but he didn't have a bad election with women at the last election. But if women decide as a group, especially older women, to switch off, then the government is gone. Um, I've, actually heard this, I've actually heard this from uh, from people on the coalition side in their in their more pessimistic moments.
1: Fred, one of the things Ross, I think very challenging though is you know as a, as a working mother, I'd say one of the absolute hardest things has been homeschooling for you know the parents of Australia, and that of course is a state matter. And Morrison, in his more libertarian moments, wanted to keep schools open in ways that the premiers fought against, and so I think. Cutting across that um, very real story about a gender gap that George points to is that the biggest exhaustion is, you know, pandemic related. Obviously, some of the revelations around sexual assault are very, very troubling and squarely at the feet of Canberra. But I do think homeschooling is just not to be underestimated as a source of the Mm. exhaustion and which does not actually redound at the federal level.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Um, while we're speaking about gender gap, Ros, you're the director of a Pathways to Politics program at UNSW. There are back to the election, this upcoming election. There's a lot of female candidates running as independents, mainly with the Voices of Movement. Voices of India was the, the model for that. Do you see this as a real threat to the major parties at this election? And Laura, I wonder if it, what you think about it and all this talk of likelihood of a hung parliament. So, Ros, and then Laura.
1: We'll have to leave the experts to talk about the hung parliament. I think that the the sense that there are a lot of really serious female-identified community-led candidates is absolutely right. And they want to talk about gender and climate change and those issues. They don't want this election to be only about COVID-19. They want to keep other really important issues on the agenda. And I would be shocked if at least some of them didn't get up and have some real sway over the agenda items of the next parliament. But... George and Laura are much more expert. You should ask them about what's going to happen.
0: Laura, you're in the hot seat. What do you think? The likelihood of any of these candidates getting up and the likelihood of a hung parliament? I suppose I'd work it in reverse, Fran. I
2: mean, you know, we're basically in sort of effectively minority governments or very close to it for most of the last decade. So there's, you know, it doesn't require much to change that. I think there is a good prospect that a couple of those women could get up. But more importantly, they are already changing the dynamics of politics just by being there. I mean, they're targeting Liberal seats, so the party has to focus on a lot more seats than it otherwise would. They've got to pay some sort of lip service to the issues that these women are raising. We see that in, um, you know, sort of fairly minor things that they're doing about climate change in some of those Victorian seats So Mm -hmm. it is already changing the politics, I think. I think there is a really good chance that there could be a hung parliament. We've already got a lot of um, crossbenchers in the House of Representatives. So a couple more. And I think that people's terror of or horror of the idea of minority government is not what it was in 2010. People have got used to the idea of it now. Mm -hmm. And if they vote for those women, it won't just be on these issues, Fran. I think it'll be partly because they you know feel that the existing system hasn't delivered um, good quality people to deal with the pandemic um, so it'll be a judgment on the two sides of politics as well I think
0: yeah maybe some more as George will say grown-ups in the room George let me put this question to you it's from someone tuned in tonight Adrian mm-hmm. said us has this pandemic demonstrated the lack of accountability? in government structures, media spin, phony announcements and blame games, do pollies feel invincible? Just a quick one from you and maybe a quick one from Laura too who deals with this every day on 7.30.
3: This is a good question. Do pollies feel invincible? I think pollies want to project that they're invincible. So specifically Scott Morrison and the way he, blame shifting is one thing. There is this look that sort of comes across his eye when he thinks he's figured out a way to avoid your question or he thinks he's figured out a way to show you that he's still in charge now most people aren't watching that and so the question is in his interaction with media during the pandemic where whether he's felt more or less accountable i think he felt very accountable at the start of the pandemic and then when he wanted to push this thing onto the states obviously the premiers because the premiers in a sense grabbed power they felt more accountable than he needed to feel but it's all about him at the next election I mean, this is a, If you were wargaming a story to impose transparency on someone who, look, in my experience, I've never covered a Prime Minister who is that thin-skinned about being questioned, just at a very basic level. If you wanted to work wargame the worst-case scenario is to try and make the election just about in. And I think you'll get a lot of scrutiny during the campaign, even if it isn't in the way that it used to happen in old media, because... Okay. We're going to have 30-something days to just think about him and I'm not sure that he wants to be in that position.
0: Well, Laura, just the last couple of minutes to you then on this because you are there at those press conferences when you're asking questions or not getting a chance to ask the questions. Prime Minister, this week I think it was, you know, he pulled off that miracle win the last election. He said that he knows, quote, all the things I have to do, I know what the path looks like. Back to Adrian's question, do pollies feel invincible with the media spin, the phony announcements and the blame games? I don't
2: know if they feel invincible. I think, I mean, I think there are two things. One of them is, you know, there is the game, um, which they all play. But I think Scott Morrison is in a class of his own in that regard. Sean Kelly's written a really excellent book about him, about his capacity to, you know, believe whatever he's saying at the moment. Um, but I think if we looked at a sort of test case of this sort of idea of accountability, you know, when he knows he's in trouble, if we look back at the way he dealt with the Brittany Higgins and Christian Porter issues uh, last year, he ultimately, you know, went through the sort of motions of saying, you know, I beg the Australia, women of Australia's indulgence, you know, I'm um, blah, 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 blah. But he never actually sort of gets there. And I think it's the same with what we've seen with COVID. He sort of says, oh, well, you know, mistakes have been made, but he never actually says, it's a very simple thing to say, Fran, which is to say, we've made some mistakes. Now we're going to look at how that came about and how we don't make them in the future. And that's what people want to hear. People are quite mm-hmm. happy to hear I made a mistake you know that'd be a great thing but his incapacity to say we're changing what we do and to actually really acknowledge that
0: you know things could be done better uh, I think is a real Achilles heel for him okay well we will see where this all goes politics of the pandemic thank you very much all of you for tuning in to pandemic politics thanks to Ros Laura and George for being with us and to the Sydney Festival and the UNSW Centre for Ideas for making this happen. So thanks to all of you for being here. Have a great night. Stay safe. Stay well. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit sydneyfestival.org.au and centreforideas.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.